This is Guns and Butter. Bill Casey, the legendary uh, CIA director from the Reagan-Iran-Contra years, had been chairman of, of the Securities and Exchange Commission under Ronald Reagan. And he, uh, he, in fact, was a Wall Street lawyer and a stockbroker. I've already mentioned Dave Doherty, the vice president of NYSE, who is the retired CIA uh, general counsel. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, is now a paid consultant to the Carlyle Group, the 11th largest uh, defense contractor in the nation, uh, very influential on Wall Street. Buzzy Krongard is there. John Deutsch, uh, the former CIA director, who retired a couple years ago, a few years ago, uh, is now on the board at Citibank or Citigroup. And uh, his number three, uh, Nora Slatkin, the executive director at CIA, is also at Citigroup. And Maurice Hank Greenberg, uh, who is the chairman of AIG Insurance, which is the third largest investment pool of capital in the world, was up to be the CIA director in 1995, and Bill Clinton uh, declined to nominate him. So there is an inextricable and unavoidable relationship uh, between CIA and Wall Street. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Rupert and John Judge. Today's show, we remember Michael Rupert and John Judge. Michel Chosadovsky recently posted on Global Research a transcript of the very first broadcast of Guns and Butter. Here is what Michelle wrote. Remembering Michael C. Rupert, Wall Street, the CIA, and 9-11, the CIA had complete and perfect knowledge of the attacks. We pay tribute to Michael C. Rupert, an outstanding author and friend, committed to 9-11 truth. Michael Rupert's interview on Guns and Butter with Kelly Ramirez and Bonnie Faulkner was aired on KPFA one month after the tragic events of 9-11. Rupert was first to reveal the forbidden truth, speculative trade on airline stocks based on foreknowledge of the 9-11 attacks. Today we bring you the substance of that very first program. Good afternoon and welcome to Guns and Butter, the Economy Watch. I'm Kelly Romaris with Bonnie Faulkner. Guns and Butter will focus on the economic effects of the September 11th attacks and the so-called war on terrorism. We'll be taking a look at the damage done by the attacks, economic recovery efforts, who wins and who loses. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. On September 29th, the San Francisco Chronicle reported that investors had yet to collect more than $2.5 million in profits they made trading options in the stock of United Airlines before the September 11th terrorist attacks. The uncollected money raises suspicions that the unidentified investors had advanced knowledge of the attacks. The Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating high levels of short sales and purchases of put options on the stocks of United Airlines and American Airlines in the three business days before the attacks. Short sales and put options are bets that a stock will fall in price. Meanwhile, the Interdisciplinary Center, a counterterrorism think tank headed by former Israeli intelligence officers, has issued a report on Osama bin Laden's finances, saying insiders profited by nearly $16 million on transactions involving the two airlines and the investment banking firm Morgan Stanley, which occupied 22 floors of the World Trade Center. 
and that report excluded other unusual trading activity involving insurance companies with significant exposure to damage claims resulting from the attacks. Joining us by phone from Southern California is Michael C. Rupert. Rupert is a former Los Angeles Police Department field officer and narcotics investigator whom the CIA twice tried to recruit. In the course of investigations in the mid-1970s, he came across information the CIA was trading drugs in order to fund covert operations. He was forced out of the LAPD in November 1978 after being shot at and threatened for speaking out about CIA drug activity. At a town hall meeting on November 15, 1996, Rupert publicly confronted then-CIA Director John Deutsch with information about three specific CIA drug operations. The confrontation led to an invitation to appear before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, where he spoke and presented written evidence concerning the CIA's infiltration of and illegal relationships with a number of police departments throughout the country. Michael Rupert publishes From the Wilderness, a magazine which deals with the effects of illegal covert operations on our society. He's here today to discuss his latest article for that magazine about the CIA's knowledge of and connections to the suspect trading that occurred in the days prior to the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Michael Rupert, welcome to Guns and Butter, The Economy Watch. Thanks. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Do you think the CIA had advanced knowledge of the attacks? Did they, did they know a specific attack was coming? I am absolutely convinced that the Central Intelligence Agency had complete and perfect foreknowledge of the attacks down to date, date time, place, and location, yes. Tell us how the CIA monitors the stock market. Well, uh, I have written several stories about this over the years. Uh, one of the primary functions of the Central Intelligence Agency, by virtue of its long and very close history of relationships with Wall Street, I mean to the point where the current executive vice president of the New York Stock Exchange is the retired CIA general counsel, uh, has had a mandate to track, monitor all financial markets worldwide to look for anomalous trades indicative of either uh, economic warfare uh, or insider uh, currency trading and speculation which might affect the U.S. Treasury or uh, as in the case of the September 11th attacks, to look for trades which indicated foreknowledge uh, of attacks like we saw. Uh, one of the vehicles that they use to do this is a software called Promise Software, uh, which was developed in the 1980s, actually 1979, uh, by Bill Hamilton and a firm called Inslaw in uh, Washington, D.C. area. And uh, Promise is very unique for two reasons. First of all, it has the ability to integrate a wide range of databases using different computer languages and to make them all into one readable uh, format. And secondly, in the years since, Promise has been mated with artificial intelligence to even predict moves in markets and to detect trades that are anomalous uh, as a result of those projections. So um, uh, as recently as last year, I met with members of the RCMP national security staff who came down to Los Angeles, where I am, uh, who were investigating uh, stolen applications of Promise Software and its uh, applications. And we reconfirmed at that time that not only the U.S., but Israel, Canada, uh, and many other countries use Promise-like software to track real-time trades in the stock markets uh, to warn them of these events. Kelly O'Ramaris here. Mike, is it possible that the terrorists could have gotten hold of the software? 
Uh, no, it's well, it, it is and it isn't. Uh, the key piece of evidence uh, around September 11th is not that the software would have had any impact. The key evidence, uh, as I heard you uh, describing, was the trades themselves, the so-called the uh, the put options and the short selling of American Airlines, United Airlines. Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and uh, a couple of uh, reinsurance companies in uh, Europe, uh, which are just really off the maps. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't need software to look at these trades and say, oh, my God, there's, this is directly connected to World Trade Center. Okay, but that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, United Airlines had a lot of trouble last year, labor disputes, uh, uh, lots of cancellations. We're, we're on, we're, we were on the verge of a recession going into the attacks, and Morgan Stanley's an investment backing firm. Uh, uh, some day traders could have seen some activity and joined the party entirely innocently. Uh, how can you make a prediction of an attack? Well, uh, the Herzliya International Policy Institute in Israel, which tracks uh, counterterrorism, also tracks financial trading. That's a clear cut sign ab about how closely the two are related. And their reports are very clear that uh, between September 6th and 7th, the, the Chicago Board Options Exchange, uh, CBOE, uh, saw purchases of 4,744 put options on uh, UAL, but only 396 call options. On September 10th, the day before the attacks, uh, 4,516 put options were placed on American Airlines against only 748 calls, calls being bets that the stock will go up, puts being that the stock will go down. No similar trading in any other airlines occurred on the Chicago Exchange in the days immediately preceding Black Tuesday. That means that someone had advanced knowledge that only the stocks of these two airlines would be adversely impacted. Had, uh, had it just been an in industry-wide slump, uh, then you would have seen the same kind of activity on every airline, not just these two. But what is also very anomalous, very out of whack here, is the fact that the number of uh, put options placed, which are options to sell the stock uh, at, a, at a high price, at, at, at which uh, will pay you after the stock goes down, that uh, the level of these trades was up by 1,200% in the three days prior to the World Trade Center attacks. Tell us, uh, give us a brief overview, really, of the connections between the CIA and the banking and investment community. Your article suggests there's a revolving door between Wall Street and the CIA. Well, indeed there is. Uh, first of all, it's very important to note right up front that uh, European investigators uh, who are tracking trades in the uh, insurance companies, uh, as well as the Israeli Institute, have uh, disclosed that the UAL put options were uh, primarily handled by Deutsche Bank, A.B. Brown. And it's very important to note that the current number three at CIA, the executive director, a man by the name of A.B. Buzzy Krongard, is, uh, was until 1998 the chairman of A.B. Brown, uh, and who uh, the, the company went from being owned to being owned by Bankers Trust and then to being owned by Deutsche Bank. But uh, this is a man uh, effectively running CIA, uh, who came from the bank that handled the trades. Historically speaking, uh, we go back to 1947. We look at Clark Clifford, who wrote the National Security Act of 1947. He was a Wall Street banker and a lawyer from Wall Street. He was the chairman of First American Bank Shares that brought uh, BCCI onto U.S. shores 
in the uh, late 1980s. Uh, he was given the design for the CIA by John Foster and Alan Dulles, uh, two brothers, uh, John Foster becoming Secretary of State, Alan becoming Director of Central Intelligence, uh, who was fired by John Kennedy. They were partners in what is, uh, until this day, the most powerful law firm on Wall Street, Sullivan Cromwell. Uh, Bill Casey, the legendary uh, CIA director from the Reagan-Iran-Contra years, had been chairman of, of the Securities and Exchange Commission under Ronald Reagan. And he, uh, in fact, was a Wall Street lawyer and a stockbroker. I've already mentioned Dave Doherty, the vice president of NYSE, who is the retired CIA uh, general counsel. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, is now a paid consultant to the Carlyle Group, the 11th largest uh, defense contractor in the nation. Uh, very influential on Wall Street. Buzzy Krongard is there. John Deutsch, uh, the former CIA director, who retired a couple years ago, a few years ago, uh, is now on the board at Citibank or Citigroup, and uh, his number three, uh, Nora Slatkin, the executive director at CIA, is also at Citigroup, and Maurice Hank Greenberg, uh, who is the chairman of AIG Insurance, which is the third largest investment pool of capital in the world, was up to be the CIA director in 1995, and Bill Clinton uh, declined to nominate him. So there is an inextricable and unavoidable relationship uh, between CIA and Wall Street. This is Guns and Butter, the Economic Watch. You are listening to Michael C. Rupert, publisher of From the Wilderness magazine, author of an article on the CIA, the stock market, and the terrorist attacks. Michael Rupert, this is Bonnie Faulkner. Does the CIA itself invest in the stock market? Uh, that's uh, unknown. It, what is known, and what was disclosed by hearings chaired uh, by Senator Frank Church in 1976, is that the CIA was known and proven in uh, congressional record to operate proprietary companies, some of which do uh, trade their stock on Wall Street. Uh, one of these uh, Southern Air Transport, excuse me, was uh, was outed during the Iran-Contra years. There are others, uh, Evergreen Air, which uh, may or may not be a proprietary, but it uh, has strong CIA connections. There are tons of these companies out there. It's not known if uh, the CIA directly manipulates markets, although I really believe that, that they do. Michael Rupert, is the CIA's budget public knowledge? No. Uh, by law, under the National Security Act of 1947, the CIA's budget is hidden uh, in the budgets of all the other departments of government. Uh, we've never been able to pin down, uh, because it's a secret, exactly how much money CIA gets, but the best estimates available, and these are from very good sources, that are that it's around $30 billion a year. So I'm assuming then that no one knows where they keep their budget. I mean, do they keep it in the bank, drawing interest? I guess we don't know. Well, no, the, the way it would work under the NSA, uh, National Security Act, is that uh, if the budget is $30 billion, uh, $10 billion may, may be in the Department of Defense, uh, 5 in the Department of Justice, 3 in uh, U.S. Treasury, uh, that's how they hide the funds. Michael Kelly Ramaris again. You've laid out a scenario which would suggest that the CIA is so involved in Wall Street, they knew these trades were happening, they knew why. Why would the CIA let such a horrendous thing happen if they knew about it? All the loss of life, all the economic damage that we let off our show with uh, that's going to happen to everyday people, state and local governments, small investors, businesses. Why did they let it happen if they knew? Well, first of all, let's look at history. 
there is, and I'm a great addict of the History Channel, and all this year on the Secrets of World War II, one of their series, they have run maybe three, four, five times a documentary showing clearly that Franklin Roosevelt had absolute knowledge that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor on December the 7th. Navy had broken the codes. Uh, that information was made top secret. And Roosevelt allowed the attacks to happen with the express purpose of bringing the U.S. into World War II. So there is historical precedent for this. What I had been writing in From the Wilderness for more than two years, and so we've been in, uh, publishing four years now, uh, was of huge economic uh, inconsistencies, bubbles that were about to burst, about a pending collapse of the U.S. economy that was going to happen anyway. Just two days before the attacks, I sent a bulletin to my subscribers saying uh, there's a, a monstrous derivatives bubble uh, to the tune of about uh, $20 trillion uh, that's about to burst. The price of gold has been manipulated, and the stock market's ready to crash. And in fact, we had seen the Dow drop by almost 900 points in the three weeks prior to the attack. So in point of fact, the economic crash was going to happen anyway. As a result of the attacks, now there are two benefits for the government. Number one, there is a convenient enemy upon whom to place the blame for the economic crash. And second, the uh, the legislation passed by Congress has unleashed a torrent of short-term and what are going to be extremely expensive solutions which are keeping uh, the uh, U.S. economic bubble inflated. Uh, this incentive, now it's about $100 billion so far, I believe, between 40 for the military and uh, another $60 billion in tax cuts, um, is robbing Peter to pay Paul. And uh, I am absolutely convinced that Social Security is toast, and this was their way to get the foot in the door on that. Yes, but what about their plans to privatize Social Security? I don't want my retirement in the stock market after what you've said and even what I saw before. I sure don't either. But you have to remember that the current Bush administration is a reincarnation of the administration we saw during Iran-Contra and during the years of uh, President Bush's presidency from uh, uh, 89 to uh, 93. Uh, these are the people who brought us the savings and loans crisis, which took $500 billion out of U.S. taxpayer pockets. Uh, these guys uh, know how to loot an economy. Uh, there are very credible, well-documented stories from GAO that have been written on, even in the Washington Times, showing that the Department of Defense has, and this is the right word, has lost more than $3 trillion in the last two years. That money is not lost, it's been stolen. More than $59 billion has been taken out of HUD. There are monstrous economic costs which are going to fall on the American taxpayer, but they will not fall on the administration or its allies on Wall Street. Speaking of Wall Street, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's a, a level playing field for the small investor, the person who has their kid's college fund in, in something in Wall Street to try to make it grow. No, uh, it, it absolutely is not. In 1929, some 15% of all the stock in circulation was owned by households. In 2001, 75% of the stock in circulation was owned by households. Uh, that tells you who's carrying the burden. If you look at some of the market activity in recent years, for example, two years ago, Goldman Sachs went public. And that means that households bought their stock, but Goldman Sachs took the money and cashed out. Uh, there has been a strong trend in the movement of money by the very rich offshore, out of the country, into safe havens, so that when the bubble does break, 
uh, it'll be the taxpayer holding the bag. Give us a website and a little bit about your, uh, your magazine for those who might be interested in learning more. Okay, the uh, website is www.cop, V like in Victor, CIA.com, C-O-P-V-C-I-A.com. From the Wilderness is a uh, newsletter we publish 11 times a year. We're read in 17 countries uh, by 16 members of the U.S. Congress, including the intelligence committees of both houses, as well as by professors at 11 universities in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it's a monthly subscriber. The, the, the website is free. Uh, the subscribers get a little more information and a little newer, but uh, we take great pride in, in the fact that we document everything that we publish so we don't ask anybody to take anything on faith. Is Congress uh, knocking on your door to uh, look more into this? Are we going to see any congressional hearings into possible knowledge of the CIA of the attacks? I mean, we're talking about they let mass murder happen. Yes. Uh, I have spoken confidentially to two members of the House of Representatives. And I have to tell you that my take on their view, and these are members who I consider to be allies and, and uh, very uh, progressive and, and uh, awake, uh, they're basically uh, frightened. Uh, the climate uh, is one of uh, near hysteria. There is an, uh, uh, an overwhelming attitude in the general public of wave the flag and kill the bad guys. And it's not politically um, wise, I guess, in uh, their viewpoint to risk their careers uh, by raising questions, but some of them have to and some of them must. Uh, every day there are more and more holes in all of the stories surrounding September 11th, and this uh, avoids people from looking at a, at a broader agenda in Central Asia, which has to do with the drug trade and the oil. Uh, bear in mind that uh, Senator Carl Levin has documented that $300 billion a year in drug money moves through the U.S. banking system, and that was in a minority report to the uh, Senate Banking Committee released uh, this February, I believe it was. But that money is now an integral component to sustaining the bubble. And that's why we're seeing CIA operatives moving willy-nilly into Uzbekistan to give us immediately another Laos, just like we had in uh, the Vietnam era with Air America planes flying uh, tons of uh, heroin uh, to markets in the U.S. and Western Europe. And that's, that's what's coming out of this. Also, there's a huge grab for oil and a major pipeline to run from Uzbekistan down to the Pakistani coast, uh, which will weaken Russia's grip on the region. And I believe long-term the economic motive is to balkanize Russia. Uh, but members of Congress now faced with this are kind of overwhelmed. Uh, there have been a few uh, voices speak up here and there to oppose uh, civil rights legislation that was uh, uh, punitive, uh, to uh, uh, address issues of the war-making powers. Uh, but Congress needs to find its legs and its lungs real quickly. Michael Rupert, this is Bonnie Faulkner. We have one minute left. Uh, you've mentioned when the bubble is going to burst. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that the bubble has already burst. Oh, no. Uh, what do you expect to see? <clears throat> I was already predicting that the Dow would be uh, at 8,000 or below by the end of October. Now, the, uh, who knows what the short-term impacts of all of the money that's being poured out of the Treasury are going to have. But bear in mind, there is still a huge bubble. Uh, according to Russian economists, I was in Russia in March, there's $300 trillion in derivatives w waiting to pop. Now, what that means is that one more good terrorist attack, and we could really understand what a bubble is. And the FBI has said uh, 
watch out for terrorist attacks in the next few days, and the CIA says that we're at 100% risk of terrorist attacks. Okay, uh, thank you very much for joining us. You have been listening to Michael C. Rupert, publisher of From the Wilderness magazine and author of an article on the CIA, the stock market, and the terrorist attacks. Again, his website is www.copvcia.com. Again, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You've been listening to Michael Rupert, interviewed on October 12, 2001, one month after September 11th, on the first broadcast of Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We pay tribute to John Judge, an outstanding researcher, author, and friend, from his September 19, 2002 presentation, 9-11 and Future Wars. Here is an excerpt. I wanted to thank May Russell. Some of you know her work, died in the 1980s. She was a mentor for me for many, many years, as well as a personal friend and fellow researcher for nearly 20 years. Shared our notes. And I can tell you right now, with the headlines that are in the news, I would be calling her with the most recent update, and May would say, after finishing laughing, oh, my aching ass. She was indefatigable. She clipped 15 daily newspapers, 150 periodicals a month. She read three to 500 books a year. She broke it down into a weekly radio show she called World Watchers, which she thought would catch on like Weight Watchers with other housewives who would form clipping clubs. And actually, the beginnings of the research in the John F. Kennedy assassination, you wouldn't know this from the books, started with a group of women like that, Maggie Fields, Lillian Castellano, Mae Russell, Sylvia Moore in New York, and women really began the work that was then handed to Jim Garrison and many of the early uh, male researchers in the case. And I am a dim candle related to May Russell in my view, but I do my best. I used to clip the Washington Post and the New York Times every day, but the content has gotten so minimalized that outside of the obituaries and the social page, there's almost no information left about the ruling class except the propaganda that they're spreading, so I've given up on that. On a station that actually runs tapes of my talks during their fundraising marathons, I have trouble getting on live, but uh, this is only a part of the contradictions of being a so-called conspiracy theorist in the current atmosphere of the left and left structuralism, which doesn't want to hear from it. But I would rather not be up here. I, I gave a talk in 1996 in Los Angeles, and it was actually the last of my talks until just recently. I did get to talk in Seattle in February, and one of the people there, a young man, came down from the university audience and said, aren't you afraid to say these things in public? And I said, only because I never get invited back. So I haven't really had a forum until just recently, but uh, in 96, the talk was titled, Are You Scared Yet? And the subtitle was Terrorism, Phony Terrorism, Counterterrorism, and the Strategy of Tension. And what I talked about were government plans that have been going on for 20 years to replace the threat of communism with the alleged threat of terrorism and to create a rise in domestic terrorism that would lead to the end of civil liberties and a march toward martial law and also a march toward increased war. It's not something that I I wish I had been predictive about, but the reality is, is that the underpinnings of all this exist back to then. And so I would rather not have seen, as many of us, I'm sure, the morning of September the 11th and what's ensued since in terms of the society that we're now being forced to live in. And I'm certainly reminded of uh, George Orwell's three slogans on the uh, building of 
the Ministry of Truth in, in the year 1984. He was really writing about 1948, and that was the original title of his book. But the slogans are, war is peace, ignorance is strength, and freedom is slavery. And if you don't, don't hear those reverberating somewhere in the current period, I think you need to take your earplugs out. I wanted to open and end with uh, two paragraphs from a very prescient uh, essay written by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., in an essay called The World House. I don't know if you're familiar with this essay, but it's part of his theme about the future and where we're going and whether we're going into chaos or community. The first paragraph reads, Some years ago, a famous novelist died. Among his papers was found a list of suggested plots for future stories, the most prominently underscored being this one. Quotes, a widely separated family inherits a house in which they have to live together. End quotes. This is the great new problem of mankind. We have inherited a large house, a great world house in which we have to live together. Black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interest who, because we can never again live apart, must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. On uh, September the 11th last year, the United States entered the world community, and we were no longer exempt from the plague of horrors that have abounded in modern history in countries all over the world, and which, unfortunately, these horrors are ones in which the United States has been directly or indirectly responsible during the last 50 years. But it's 50 years of both covert and overt wars and coup d'etats, assassinations, and international commerce in guns and drugs, military and other types of political intervention, corporatization, structural adjustment under the world banks and the current corporate and neoliberal model, and a long history of ecocide, ethnocide, and genocide that began in earnest with the Vietnam War, but was really a legacy of the end of World War II and the developments there under the rise of fascism. Does that mean because the United States was involved in those things that innocent people should have died on September 11th? Well, of course not. That was a crime against humanity and a mass murder as well. But the problem is that for most Americans, we do not know what has been done in our name in the rest of the world. For many Americans, we don't understand, as was asked after September 11th, why do they hate us in other countries? The version of reality we are given is that we are a nation of generous people who provide foreign aid abroad and help countries to go toward democracy. And while in the hearts of many people in this country that may be their intent and it may be what they'd like to do or feel that they're doing, the deeper reality is different and people see a different face of America in most of the relations in the world. And even the foreign aid that we brag about being so large and sometimes complain about not being used here for certain communities uh, is about 70 to 75 percent military assistance and weapons. And that, that's a large part of uh, the size of what's considered charitable aid abroad. The problem is, I think, that these things have been done without our knowledge, and that's happened because our history, with the inception of the national security state in 1948, has become a commodity of that state. Our history has been stolen from us especially in the current period. It's always probably been distorted, 
but it became actively impossible to access after the development of the, of the classification systems. There's one archive in Washington, D.C., not far from my house in Suitland, Maryland, that is merely the military archive of the National Records Administration. And this military archive is the classified military documents since the end of World War II. And they exist in Suitland in underground buildings. Each of the buildings is an acre in size. There are 27 acre-sized buildings holding merely the classified documents since the end of World War II relating to military operations. So we literally have to dig our history up now from its being buried. And when a people don't own or control their history, when they can't have access to history, that's a mark of a conquered people. And without access to that history, we live in a world where, as Martin Schatz quite presciently says in an early letter he wrote to Vince Salandria, one of the JFK researchers, he quotes this in the opening of his book, History Will Not Absolve Us, about the Kennedy assassination. And the paragraph says, the political paralysis is in America is that we are allowed to believe anything but to know nothing. And so we can believe it's aliens from the Pleiades or a hybrid reptile race or a trilateral commission or a Illuminati, it doesn't matter. We're not allowed to know. Do we have a document? Do we have a smoking gun? Do we have something to prove that they could have had foreknowledge about the case? I mean, this is the dilemma, isn't it? That we probably won't get the real documents for 30 years, although I don't know if you saw the front page of the Chronicle today, but here's evidence of a Senate committee getting documents that date back to 95, 96, 98, 2000, and 2001 about information that the different intelligence agencies knew in advance that planes were going to be targeted at buildings in the United States, including the Twin Towers, from the Al-Qaeda and these groups. So, no, I don't have those documents, but the secret committees of Congress have seen them. But for me, the question is not whether we could have or did have foreknowledge, because I don't think that essentially leads us to where we have to go with this, and it may lead us in the wrong direction. For the Senate Intelligence Committee to say, we had this foreknowledge, but we didn't use it, it means that we had an intelligence failure on September 11th, and therefore, how do we fix it? Well, we need to increase the budget of the intelligence agencies. We need, we need to strengthen the intelligence agencies' coordination with each other. We may need to put them all under one particular roof. I mean, there's many solutions to this kind of a problem, but it's not a solution that does any of us any good. And, uh, but, you know, there will be smoking guns to come, but, you know, if your goal in Nazi Germany was to document the Holocaust before you could do something about it, I'd suggest you might have ended up dead. Okay? I mean, we can't fully document uh, because we don't own this history, and our reality, uh, therefore, is also a commodity of this secrecy and this security state. And Eisenhower, in his departing speech when he left office, in the original speech, and I've seen the copy of what he actually wrote, warned about the rise of a, quotes, military-industrial intelligence complex. That third word was dropped out then in the final speech. Um, but he, even he could see what was coming, and we passed over then on September 11th, in many ways like November 22nd, 63, a paradigm shift with different sets of assumptions and different messages uh, being given to us about the world we lived in and the kind of power that we had. Uh, security is now posed as the source of liberty, which I would suggest is upside down. Liberty is the source of security. 
and it's being posed openly that way, and it was Ben Franklin that said that those who would trade their liberty for security deserve neither. And we have this, this situation where we're going into, again, a permanent war economy. We're increasing the DOD and the CIA and the DIA budgets. And most people have heard of the CIA, but they haven't heard of the DIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. But do you know that the DIA has a budget 100 times the CIA and the FBI combined? Do you know that it has 10 times as many personnel as the CIA and the FBI combined? Do you know that the Office of Naval Intelligence under the DIA is the oldest and largest intelligence agency in the United States? Do you know that the most secret police force and the largest police force, the government police force in the United States is the Defense Industrial Security Command under the DIA? Have you ever heard of an organization with the initials NRO? Those initials themselves used to be secret. It's out now, the National Reconnaissance Office, they run the satellites. The NSA, National Security Agency, which tracks every electronic communication in the world, these are all under DIA. The CIA can come up with a plan for an assassination, a coup, or some sort of thing abroad, but they have to go to the Pentagon and liaison with the DIA to actually carry out the plan because the CIA doesn't have any planes or weapons or troops or people to move around on its own. They can subcontract some people, but they really exist in relation to the military intelligence. And I, I can find 600 books about the CIA, but I challenge you to find more than five books about the ONI. I only know of two books about the NSA, and they're both written by the same spook, James Manford. Okay. And uh, he tells us a little, he doesn't tell us all. So the real inception of the national security state dating back to World War I is a history of military intelligence, spying army intelligence files, spying on radicals led to the Palmer raids. And those files were given to J. Edgar Hoover, which became the basis later of COINTELPRO. The attacks on civil liberties here in the United States came out of army intelligence. Army intelligence was spying on Dr. King's grandfather. And they were spying on Dr. King himself. Okay, but we rarely hear of military intelligence or the role that it plays or have a way to take much of a look at it. And certainly this budget of trillions and trillions of dollars since the end of World War II has created a machinery of death that makes the old Nazi Hohenzollern Wehrmacht look like a rubber band affair in terms of its genocidal capability. Most people were, have been taken down a path since those years of seeing fascism an enemy and then communism replacing that, and now terrorism replacing communism. But isn't it the case that those enemies, in terms of their actual threats, diminish, while at the same time what we're supposed to be financing in terms of a response to them increases? So that we need a bigger budget to deal with six terrorist groups than we did with a whole continent that had nuclear arms. And, uh, of course, all of this is based on government lies and uh, staged incidents that are used to create wars. Uh, there's nothing unusual about staging incidents to create wars. If you go back in the real history, uh, the Maine, the Lusitania, Pearl Harbor, Tonkin Gulf, over time it came out that these incidents were, were either prompted or staged or known about in advance, let to happen or created to happen in order to get the propaganda necessary to bring the United States into war. Do most of you ever heard of Operation Canned Meat? That was an operation in Nazi Germany in September of 1939. The Germans went to the Polish border and they shot and killed Polish border guards. They traded uniforms with the border guards, dragged them over the border, took pictures of dead German border guards shot by Poles, and started the Polish invasion. Most, I mean, it was Aeschylus the Greek that said that truth is the first casualty of war. And another element of war and operations, covert operations especially, is false sponsorship going back at least to the Boston Tea Party where people dressed as Indians in order to dump the tea into the sea.
And I came to understand through growing up that these lies were such that everything I was being told that the enemy was doing, we in fact were doing. And we weren't being told about that. I mean, we hear now every day almost from the pundits that Saddam Hussein gassed his own people. He gassed his own people. He gassed his own people. Well, um, we gassed a lot of our own people. We killed a lot of our own people. Okay? And other countries have too. He's not the first person in history who killed segments of populations. If you understand who really lives in Israel and Palestine without a Palestinian state, the Israelis are killing their own people. There's nothing new about that. And in fact, if you go to Nuremberg and the record, you'll find that the Nazi defense at Nuremberg was, why are you taking us to court for mass sterilization? You started mass sterilization in the 1920s in order to get rid of the retarded and the feeble-minded. You began to do it. We copied you. Why are you taking us to court for rounding up people and putting them in concentration camps and killing them. You taught us that with how you treated Native Americans in your own country. Does that mean one genocide can be defended by another? No. But it should tell us something about the mentality of a country that says, you know, we can take you to trial. And in fact, the United States wouldn't even form or take part in the international Nuremberg tribunals without the Collins Amendment that said that the United States could veto any charge ever brought against it under such a tribunal. And that rule still applies right up now to the international courts. We never want any, and it's not because we're afraid that they'll charge our GIs with crimes. It was in the New York Times just two weeks ago that we're really worried about Kissinger. We're worried about the top level people getting brought in for the war crimes that they've been part of. So it's this, it's this sort of hypocrisy that we pick people abroad, many of whom we've put in power, and then we turn and demonize them We've always been at war with Eurasia. We've never been at war with East Asia, they say in 1984. And then a week later, we've always been at war with East Asia. Eurasia was always our ally. Winston can't figure out what year it is. His job is to take the documents and go back in time and make the documents match the current propaganda. He controls the past, controls the future. Okay. And so, I mean, that's the theme of the book. And so he goes back and removes somebody's picture if it's not convenient to what they're saying in the present. He goes back and changes the archives. And I remember Al Navis, one of the researchers in Canada, at one point in an early radio interview when we were getting the JFK files loose, and he said, well, we think about 10% of the actual universe of files has been released to date. And the interviewer said, well, where are the rest of them? And he said, the ink's still drying. <laughs> That's his job, and then when he goes to lunch, Winston eats lunch with a guy whose job is to reduce the number of words in the dictionary. And that's because eventually you won't have a conception of revolt or dissent because there isn't a word for it. You see? So don't give you a word, then you can't think about it. And by reading history, I learned about genocide. And I learned about the Inquisition, and I learned about the crimes of history against humanity. So I came to understand that they were genocidal, not only in Nazi Germany, but here. And I also knew by the time the Vietnam War started that they were really out of control. And I also knew on November 22, 1963, that they were taking control. I got the message. I could see the movie change. I was still only 15 years old. I had a sophisticated political analysis, but I knew when Kennedy went and LBJ came in and the war started, that they were taking control and that they were killing hope in the, in the late 1960s by killing Martin Luther King and killing Robert Kennedy. And in 1968, 
I understood that I lived in a society like Winston lived in in 1984. And I began to study the political assassinations. I went from Vietnam back into the JFK assassination, back into the history of the intelligence agencies. It was also the history of the movement of Nazis at the end of World War II to the United States and around the world in technological and spying operations, really the movement of the whole Nazi agenda. Thomas Merton, very prescient in 1936, said, if America fights Hitler, it will become Hitler. Because he could understand that in a society that doesn't have much vision, you mirror your enemy. And they really went about, after I studied these things, I backed out of the intelligence agencies into organized crime, into heroin and cocaine, which fund covert operations worldwide, uh, and mind control and mass murder, and the, finally to understand that they have no limits to what they would do or will do if they're able, and to understand that we are in the same position as the expendable populations of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Uh, we are in the position of the miners in the 1930s who were told if the mine begins to collapse, push the mule out first because it costs money to replace a mule. All right? And uh, that we're not central to them because they don't need us and they don't need the labor. And fascism is not some little guy with a mustache who hates Jews. Fascism is a final stage in the monopoly concentration of power and control and money within capitalism. It's a stage that has to do with a devaluation of the currency. It has to do with economic collapse. At the same time, it has a tremendous concentration of wealth in the hands of a few and with a technological leap forward that makes labor expendable. And then depending on the biases of that particular society, it's going to see those people as useless eaters, as people that are taking up space. And so we're very much at that point, although it's not the only way that we can relate to that. But we're living in a time where I believe the extension of the fascist agenda and the dreams of those fascists, Mussolini called fascism corporatism plus reaction. And fascism was a form of socialism where the corporations became the state. And that's the current agenda. And I have a good book, if you haven't seen it, called Silent Theft about all the methods that have to do with privatization of what's left with the Commonwealth. But the Commonwealth, which used to be lands that people lived on and held as commons, began to erode as far back as the 13th century when the lords were given the right by kings to rope off as much land as they could send thugs out to protect and then to charge rents and to deed the land to them. And there's an old uh, English nursery rhyme that's quoted in the beginning of the book, and it says... They hang the man and flog the woman who steal the goose from off the common, but the other man they let go loose who steal the common from the goose. What I suggested to Mae Brussel before she died, because the content in the papers was getting so minimal, was that we go back to November 22, 1963, knowing the cast of characters as we did, and clip backwards. Because prior to the event, I figured they weren't covering their fanny quite so well, and we could find out more. So I used that same method with September 11th. And I began to clip backwards to the beginning of the year, and of course, the first indicator to me was even before that, in November of 2000, when we had this break in the script that showed us what elections are worth in the United States. 
And when I say the script, I mean two candidates of two parties are put up, no third party candidate is allowed, a phony debate on phony issues is put forward to make us think we've got a choice between the two. If that's too deadening, then we'll be told that there's a horse race and that they're nose to nose in order to make it a little more interesting as we were this time. But I would suggest that the outcome is already known in advance, and that they have never used the vote that they couldn't afford to allow an election of that important to come down to a vote. That if they'll spend $10 million making sure who's elected in Chile, what the hell do you think they spend here where it counts? And so the script is you run the election, but it's really an ascendancy of a segment of the class. It's not a popular will. They don't go and count the absentee ballots and make sure who votes and get votes from overseas. They have a poll. And why you would have a poll in a democracy prior to the outcome of an election, other than to influence the outcome of the election, I don't know. But the poll tells you who's going to win. And then you hear people say, well, I don't want to waste my vote on a loser. And they vote for the person they're told is going to win. So, I mean, it can be they get a landslide that way by sort of you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. But they don't need the landslide because they've already decided the shift is there. And then they don't even finish the polling. They have the national media count the exit polls. And before people finish voting, they announce who the winner is going to be. And then the other guy gets up and concedes. And then you have the president. And that's an election. All my life, that's an election. And then that night, Gore didn't concede. And I thought, what the hell is going on? I mean, Gore is no less of a player than Bush in these scenarios. I mean, they both have big money behind them, sometimes the same money, because if you're smart enough and rich enough, you bet every horse in the race. All right? So why is he not conceding? And then I realized, because they want us to see. They want us to know. They want us to get the message. And it was just as blatant a message as November 22, 1963. I believe that 63's message is, yeah, we shot the son of a bitch. What do you want to do about it? We can kill the president. We sure as hell kill you. Sit down, shut up, and get out of the way. That's the subliminal message. And the subliminal message of this election is, we done had about enough of this here democracy shit. We done already told you who won the election. Now set your whiny Democrat ass down and shut up. Get out of the way is the message. And... I think they pulled up the petticoat and let us and let the rest of the world know. And that was reverberated for me on a, right after September 11th when one of the first week one of the pundits said, well it wasn't even a pundit, it was a guy from the White House, said, this war will last into the second Bush administration. We didn't elect him the first time, I guess we don't have to bother for the second time. Okay, but it was an open electoral coup. In June and July of last year, according to Times of India and the international press, Colin Powell visited Pakistan, India, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, the surrounding countries. This is June and July. And he told the heads of those countries and the people in the government that the United States was going to militarily intervene in mid-October to remove the Taliban. This is in June and July. This war in Afghanistan is not a response to 9-11. This is a war that, as all wars are, planned in advance. But what I'm telling you is that we were already going into Afghanistan with this plan before they hit any of these bumps. On August the 21st, there was a very revealing article on the front page of the Washington Post. It had to do with an argument that broken out between White House officials like Rumsfeld and the neocons, who were quoting a guy from one of the right-wing think tanks, who said that America is an empire, it ought to admit that it's an empire, and it ought to get about the business of being one and that we ought to create a Pax Americana in the world. And the White House was supporting this, but there were people still remaining, their heads have rolled now, but there were people in the Joint Chiefs and in the military and the Pentagon who said, we've got enough to do. 
that this wasn't necessary to do this, that projecting this kind of empire stuff was going to take too many resources. And there was a battle going on about this internally, and I believe also continues to this day within segments of the class. That's where you're seeing a split now in the class about how to go about the war in Iraq. And it's only when the class divides and fights each other that we get a little peek in the window. Many of these scandals that I followed in my lifetime, like Contragate and Watergate, I believe are just openings of that curtain because the class is fighting each other, spilling the beans on each other, and because of it we get to see a little bit of the internal workings. And so it's interesting to watch, I mean, you know, a period where you see quotes that you could almost agree with from Henry Kissinger and Brent Scowcroft, and, you know, unless you were a little more sophisticated, you could just about agree with them. But the Joint Chiefs were having an argument with Rumsfeld in the White House at that time. September the 5th, it was announced that the CIA will get its own primetime TV show, like the old FBI show. On September the 4th and 5th, well, also right before that, on that same day, September the 5th, it was in the papers that the United States was staging a, the largest joint military operation in history off of Egypt. So they're having this operation and this exercise which moves most of the American troops right to the region where they're going to want to be when they go in in October. And they're sailing around, they're connected with Egypt. Then on the 4th and the 5th, there were articles in the London Sunday Times and the New York Times. And they had to do with two operations, one called Clear Vision and the other called Operation Jefferson. These were being conducted out at White Sands Proving Grounds and also with some military contractors. They were both CIA and DIA-related operations. Clear Vision was to do two things. It was try to create a lab with things that you could order through the Internet and samples that you could order through commercial sources to create anthrax. In other words, to grow cultures of anthrax in a laboratory that you could get to see if the terrorists could do it. The other operation was to see if terrorists could create and smuggle an anthrax bomb into the United States. And so they actually created a bomb, although they said later it didn't have a detonator and it didn't have any anthrax, that they brought this bomb and smuggled it in as a test to see whether terrorists could do this. Now, these things coming out caused an international flap because technically they're not supposed to be testing weapons or even potential weapons relating to chemical biological warfare. It's against treaties that they've signed. And so these secret operations were exposed on September the 4th and the 5th. But the more important one, Operation Jefferson, came from Rumsfeld himself. When he came into office, he ordered the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Pentagon to create the next generation of anthrax, to create an anthrax that would be genetically modified, be more lethal, be more resistant to the antibiotics, and be more distributable through its weaponization. And this is a direct violation of those treaties, to create a new weapon and a new kind of anthrax that would be harder to stop. And yet, they went ahead with these plans, and on September the 6th, the Defense Intelligence Agency had a press conference in D.C. where they announced that they not only had created but were ready to test a new generation of anthrax. That's on September the 6th. And this was all in the public press. And it was causing some flap, but generally the press just go and stick the microphone up there and they don't ask questions. September the 8th, Ike Shelton, who's in the Congress and on some of the oversight committees of the military, put out a statement saying that they should start now to move U.S. troops to be near the section around the Caspian Sea because that would be the next hot spot for U.S. foreign policy. 
And so he didn't specifically mention Uzbekistan, but he mentioned that area there. And when we think about oil, i just give you one thing to think about them going after oil. A lot of the times it's not because the U.S. needs the oil. I mean, the U.S. does use a tremendously disproportionate amount of oil. We're about 4% of the world population using 65% of the oil and non-renewable resources. But our main concern is not that we get the oil, it's that Japan and Germany don't get the oil. Because part of the way that Japan and Germany were defeated in World War II was they have no internal oil source. And so you keep them from getting oil. And the way you do it is to make sure, first, that they don't get a pipeline anywhere to cheap oil or have access to cheap oil. And the second is that you get the pipeline, you put the oil in a tanker to sea. When the tanker goes out at sea, ports bid for it. The highest port gets it. That artificially increases the price of the oil and brings it into a situation where you've got artificially expensive oil that they can only get at a much higher price, while you, taking it from the pipeline directly, can get it more cheaply. And this is the basis of the formation of the Trilateral Commission, is Japan and Germany were pulled into this axis of cooperation with the U.S. basically because they had to cut a deal in order to have access to some kind of oil. The second thing to remember about oil, and most people don't know this, is that the trade magazines in the mid-1980s noticed that 65% of that massive amount of oil use that we already have, in other words, 65% of the 65%, and they projected that 80% of the oil use by the year 2000 would be, and already was, military. I mean, this effectively means that we're fighting wars to have enough oil to fight wars. You've been listening to assassination researcher, author, co-founder of the Committee for Open Archives, and head of the Coalition on Political Assassinations, John Judge, from a two-hour presentation on September 19, 2002, 9-11 and Future Wars. Today's show has been We Remember Michael Rupert and John Judge, both seekers of truth in a world of lies. We pay tribute to each of them. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Hey, yo. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decide yourself For peace